stop peddling alternative facts. You didn't come up with a nickname. You discovered it and took credit for something that was already there. Hashtag truth. Sincerely, Tom Pan Pan Paneris. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusaders. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Back with the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 133 for February MMXVII. Back with the Oracle is brought to you by Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe Podcast. Bradley, a name that could be both a first name or a last name. Ingle, what the is an Ingle? Tangent. A phenomenon that occurs multiple times on every podcast ever. I'm waking up and cheat on dust. My belly's covered with pizza crust. I'm using my inhaler now. Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Find it bi-weekly on iTunes or at greatcrypton.com. In the Tangent Universe, the Atom looks like Superman and the Flash is a teenage girl in a skin-tight outfit.
Backer the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Backroll the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Support TBU with Patreon by going to the batmanuniverse.net. Thank you to all of you who reviewed Backroll the Oracle on iTunes. We have this latest review, which is coming from Michael Ridge. He gives it a five-star rating and says uh, the title of the review is The Woman Has Opinions. I found this podcast more than a year ago, and I've listened to most of the back catalog. Stella has improved substantially as a host and as a technician. She's now one of the most professional podcasters I listen to. She definitely has opinions about the material, and I don't always agree with them, but she presents the reasons behind her opinion in a way that respects the people who might disagree. She is more positive than negative. She is really good at interviewing creators. I think her bright and cheerful fangirl personality reassures her subjects that she is really interested in listening to them. I really think these interviews are a high point of the podcast. She's honest about what she knows she doesn't know and brings in guest hosts to fill in details when Backroll or Oracle interacts with other characters. We learn a lot from her questions. If you're interested in the women who have been Backroll, you will enjoy this. Thank you, Michael. And thank you for all who have reviewed the show on iTunes. Again, if you would like to do that, then please give a star, whatever star you feel like his podcast deserves. And then write a review explaining why so don't do a hit and run and i appreciate it well as you can tell besides you know tom popping up at the beginning and and that weird little email that he sent me because he's still upset i guess that i've revealed his secret name being pan pan i'm on my own i feel like it's been a very long time since i've been on my own for an episode and this is a regular episode we've sort of been having specials and people ask if i'm doing two a month and i'm like good heavens no but it just seems to be turning into this because i have a special and then a regular and it's just been happening that way but hello welcome to to the show. Uh, it's going to be a little weird because I like to play off of other people. I like to ask questions and get answers and responses, but it's just going to be me talking to myself. But it's going to be great to get into some of these issues, especially. I'm, I'm really excited about the vintage stuff. I think there's some good stuff here. And in the coming months, I'm really excited about some of the things that I will be tackling as well. So just stay tuned. Uh, it's a little different, but we're we're making it. Hey, I hope you are surviving just this weird climate, I think, that the United States is in. You know, any of my listeners overseas, I think perhaps you're breathing a sigh of relief that there's not this craziness. But hopefully it'll settle down sometime. But hey, that's why I enjoy comics and I enjoy reading because it takes me out of it, which you can't, you know leave it totally behind I think it's always going to be with you but it is great to step away from it for a couple hours at least I don't have too much to say I think there's going to be some discussion to be had when I go over listener emails and comments and feedback so I just want to get into the comics actually and Barbara 
appears in several around this time, and I'm going to be focusing on two birds of prey issues, but I did want to at least mention Nightwing number seven, Rough Justice, which has the cover date of April 97. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Scott McDaniel, inker Carl Story, and colorist Robert Tews. First of all, long-haired babs. Now, this is sort of something that I've been doing and joking around with Professor Allen about in that uh, we sort of look at the changes in our hairstyle, and that's certainly something that goes back and forth depending on what book she's in, but she does have long hair here. Later on, I think it is more consistent, and she'll sort of have the the shorter hair or the bob. But she's actually helping Dick with some information and I think with this interaction, because it's a couple pages, you actually learn just how Nightwing is really trying to make it on his own in Bloodhaven without Batman's help. And using Oracle, I think, is one way because she does offer up, you know, why don't you ask Bruce? And he's like, no, no. So I think Oracle is, I I think, that easy middleman to, because sometimes if you really want to separate yourself from somebody, you don't want to be around anyone that may have contact or anything, use anything that they may be associated with the person you're trying to separate with, but I think Oracle is just a nice little neutral party. She's sort of the Switzerland that anyone could potentially use and, and be friends with. And then Roland Desmond, a.k.a. Blockbuster, appears, which I feel like just has a great connection with her past and Batgirl Year One and, and all of those things. So just know that she appears. And I didn't think it was as worthwhile to like go through and, and really cover, but I know as Nightwing continues, we're going to see Barbara pop up more often. So I think that could certainly be one of the stories that I'm starting to, or one of the books that I start to cover more. But what I want to spend most of my time on are these two one-off or one-shot issues of Birds of Prey. And I'm just excited, especially about this first one, and it is Birds of Prey Revolution number 1. And it came out in 97. 1997 is like the only the cover date that they give it. It's a little ambiguous when that month actually was. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Matt Haley, inker Wade Von Grawbadger, and colorist Gloria Vasquez. Working undercover, Black Canary breaks up a white slavery ring, shipping young women to Santa Prisca. She intercepts and rescues a shipment in a truck. Oracle wants her to stow away on the ship being used and smuggle herself into the country, but she chooses to fly first class. On the island, she finds an oppressive military dictatorship. Galliant is also there, posing as a drug dealer. His meeting is not going as planned, and he has a gunship cover his presence by killing the other drug lords. Dinah checks in to the local hotel where she meets Galliant for the first time and takes a liking to him. They arrange a date. That night, thugs break into her room and attack, but she's gone. Galliant is there, though, wondering what has happened to his date. He then kills the men. Black Canary is down by the coast, staking out the docks. She stumbles onto some sort of paramilitary unit and ends up in a big fight, learning they are led by Galleon. She escapes his team and gets to the docks. Oracle tries to recall her and scrub the mission, but Dinah refuses and turns off her communicator. Black Canary rescues the slaves, getting them out in a truck, but as she covers their escape, she's set upon by a large contingent of men. Numbers take their toll, and she is captured. Oracle tracks down Galleon and places a call to him, recruiting him to rescue Dinah. 
Black Canary is now the prisoner of President Jefe del Mundo, so, you know, leader of the world. He gloats before ordering her to be brutally killed. Gallant arrives just in time, rescuing her, and then Gallant reveals he works for the Zesty Corporation, and he was here to take down Del Mundo. Del Mundo, though, is escaping, and Canary goes after him. Catching his helicopter in midair, Canary boards it and drags him out, both of them fall into the sea, and then Gallant rescues them. Oracle and Canary have their first real fight, Oracle yelling at Canary for not following instructions and cutting off communications. Will they be okay? Guess only time will tell. Well, finally, we get to see the Santa Prisca mission. And the big question is, was it worth it? And I have to say that absolutely it was worth it, right? We we saw sort of rumblings of it in the, the Lois Lane issue. And then we saw the post reaction and, and there was talks about it like, oh, remember, this isn't going to be like that. And so it's just a big question mark. What was the Santa Prisca mission? And I really wanted the gap to be filled in. I liked how at the end we finally see um, of the, the previous, um, the manhunt that, yes, we're going to go back and, and see what the Santa Prisca mission is and I thought it was absolutely worth it. I want to talk first about the relationship between the two. Friends, friends, I think this is one of those really interesting moments because at one point Barbara says, I I think it's best that you know, we not be friends uh, to a certain extent, I think, and we just keep it professional. And have you ever been in those situations where I mean, I guess I'll say we'll use friends as the example, but Maybe you were under the assumption that you were something else to somebody, maybe just like colleagues or acquaintances. And then all of a sudden that other person may mention like, oh, yeah, we're friends. And you're sort of taken aback like, oh, okay, I guess, you know, we are friends. I was taken aback as a reader that Dinah and Oracle uh, considered themselves friends, or at least Oracle did, just because I thought, that it was just a professional relationship, but I can totally see how it sort of developed into something more than just this professional relationship. But it was sad then once you figure, find that out, uh, or it is revealed that now, you know, Oracle wants to take a step back and, and just keep it personal. So I, I, I thought that was an interesting moment. There are so many humorous moments between the two of them. There are so many quotes I think that I could potentially pull out and mention. Uh, one of them is that really made me laugh was when Dinah was about to, well, she was fighting this paramilitary group and <laughs> Oracle says, look, I don't mean to be a mother hen, Dinah, but, and then Dinah's like in the midst of falling down a hill slash fighting people and she's like, cluck away, girlfriend, cluck away. And I feel like the rapport has developed so much from, you know, just being like maybe occasionally annoyed at each other or having off comments, like really, I think engage in each other's conversations, despite being, you know, currently engaged in something else like fighting, being able to joke around like this. I felt like this issue really had a wonderful moments and you could really see the chemistry between the two of them and, and highlights why I love their friendship and their sort of sistership and, and relationship as much as I do. It's hard then going from there to, to see that betrayal of trust between the two of them. And this isn't, you know, the first time that Dinah has done this to take, you know, away her communicators and sort of be stubborn and not listen to Oracle and, then I sort of think about, you know, the point of view for both of them on Barbara's side, which, you know, I would like to side with. Dinah's clearly over her head right now. It's her against 
basically two sides because you have the government which is corrupt and then you have Gallant and his men and you don't really know until the end really where he stands and so the smart idea would honestly be to back out and send someone else in or regroup and something like that but then on Dinah's side I, I totally also understand her position that she's on the ground Barbara is removed or Oracle is removed and she can't really see and she doesn't have the correct perspective that Dinah has. But I think Dinah also likes to rush in and and I think she gets herself into trouble sometimes. But it's just, I mean, the answer is not always, you know, I need to take off my communication. And so I'm totally right there with Oracle and just how frustrating that is and and the fact that Oracle has to go out of her way and basically, um, you know, call up a a villain in order to to get Dinah out of trouble. And that's, that's a problem. So I think just this whole issue was amazing. I really loved it. And just seeing this relationship between the two and how fun it is and how serious and sad and tragic it is all at the same time, you don't really realize how many emotions you could potentially go through. I think the writing was just wonderful. Uh, There's both seriousness and humor, as I said before. I loved the character of Tico. I think those were also some fun moments uh, when he first picks her up. And let me get to this here. She says, I didn't realize that you would be driving Tico. And they says, Uncle Ramos put in cruise control and automatic shift. I drive good now, eh? And then she says, that depends on what, miss? Whether or not you consider surviving the ride a good thing. And then he's giving her a tour. And she's like, watch the road, Tico. And then he's doing more tow. And he's like, the road, Tico. And then... He says, we are here, Hotel Paradiso. And then she says, with drivers like you, who needs death squads, Tico? He's just a a great little character. And at first I didn't trust him, but he sort of reminds me of the character. I don't remember his name, but in the Indiana Jones that I do not like, the second one, Temple of Doom, you've got that little driver, the taxi driver kid. Sort of reminds me of that. And then he comes back into play, which is great. Just that Dixon uses a character that could have been used just then as comedic relief and then put aside. But he's actually brought back and he's the one who drives the truck away with... The, the slaves and everything that are in there. I like that this issue starts out with a smaller mission that actually bleeds into the whole mission. I, I just think that's fun because sometimes, and, and I'll talk about it in the next one, sometimes it's a small mission that is wrapped up very quickly, sort of James Bond-esque, right? There's something in the beginning, he gets rid of it, and then, you know, there's the title sequence, and then there's something new. Sometimes with James Bond, there's a, a small mission that you don't think is really related, but actually it is related to the bigger picture, and I like those sorts of things. Such a worthwhile cause to talk about uh, trafficking, either sex or labor trafficking, and something that certainly has been convicting me lately, uh, whether I want to get involved. Uh, as, a, as a social worker, I've been considering pursuing social work and, and helping sex and labor trafficking victims. Uh, and so certainly anytime I see it, I, it really gets me thinking. I like how multi-layered I think the villains are you know with El Jefe and his rule and what does that look like and then Gallant and what he's into and you think he's a bad guy but then he's really not you just start to see I think that people are deeper than at first glance there are even layers I think to the villains I like little details and this is something that Ruth in the previous 
episode brought up that Oracle was was drinking coffee and because or just trying to stay awake because of course you know there was that time difference in Japan and and where she was in Gotham and just little things like dropping Alka-Seltzer tablets or whatever and and sneezing and things like that because she's got a cold and there's bad weather over there but overall this I love this I think perhaps this is one of the best issues that I've read so far of all these um, other one shots or the the four issue ones so I'm going to give this uh, a 10 out of 10 birds I think you really can't go wrong with this particular issue I think it's the epitome of what Birds of Prey should be and what Birds of Prey should be with Dinah and Oracle as the as the actual birds Next up is Birds of Prey Wolves, number one, or as I like to subtitle it, what would happen if Babs and Dinah were on a break? Look, oh, maybe we should just take a break. Okay, okay, fine. You're right. Let's, uh, let's take a break. Let's cool off, okay? Let's get some frozen yogurt or something. No. A break from us. I thought we were broken up. We were on a break. That, for all I knew, could last forever. That, to me, is a break up. You think you're going to get out of this on a technicality? Look, I'm not trying to get out of anything, okay? I thought our relationship was dead. Well, you sure had a hell of a time at the wake. Huh? You slept with someone else? <laughs> we were on a break. Oh, I'm sorry, were you speaking to me or sleeping with someone else? We were on a break. Okay. You know, Ross, why don't you just put that on your answering machine? We were on a break! We were on a break! Coffee house? You bet. Well, if, if she thought they were on a break... And by the way, it seems to be perfectly clear that you were on a break. <gasps> this is fun. Oh, hey, Rach, remember that whole we were on a break thing? Well, I'm sorry. Will you marry me? <laughs> this angry what about the time i said we were on a break oh. oh i wish we could just not be married for a little bit you know i just wish we could be like on a break you guys were on a break hey we were not on a break. Now, what did we agreed no more pranks and, and what else that you and daddy were not on a break very good that's it you call that a fight we were on a break. Now we weren't. What happened to you two? How long do you think that's going to last? Well, I don't know. He got over the we were on a break thing really quickly. And that's why, no matter what Mommy says, we really were on a break. I guess we were. I guess we were. <laughs> this is it. Unless we're on a break. Don't make jokes now. October 1997 is the cover date. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Matt Haley, inker Wade Von Grawbadger, and colorist Gloria Vasquez. I do love, let me just break in here, I just love that there's a consistency here with the people that Chuck is working with. I think that creates a better comic for sure. 
After a mission to prevent a major corporation from being damaged by terrorists, Black Canary and Oracle's conflict from revolutions comes to a head. Black Canary resents being used to support major corporations, while Oracle wishes Black Canary could see the big picture. They agree to go their separate ways for now, and Canary takes off the communicator. Again. The two women then face similar but separate adventures. Black Canary's ex arrives, her first ex, chased by the Ukrainian mafia and looking for help. Black Canary helps him escape, and they begin to rekindle their romance until the mob catches up with them. She learns that he stole from the Ukrainians, and that is why they are after him. She fights them all, including her ex. Barbara, meanwhile, is attacked by muggers after her van. She fights them, but is shoved into the street, and her chair is hit by a car. The man is apologetic, and he takes her to dinner. As they return to her apartment, she learns he's actually working with the muggers, and it's a home invasion. Killing the lights, she defeats the villains and turns them over to the police. Black Canary calls Oracle. She's had a bad night, and she's sorry. She wants to come back into the fold. Barbara apologizes and admits that she doesn't know everything and that Black Canary should have more freedom to act on her own. So again, just like I talked about with Revolutions, it's a nice touch with the smaller mission that introduces the issue and then having reverberations throughout. And this time, it's really just in the conversations between the two after that initial mission that that has ramifications throughout the rest of the story. It's really sad that the two are on a break, but just a really bittersweet ending and reunion and them not necessarily, uh, you know, owning up to everything that had happened. They sort of talk about it in veiled terms, but you know, the ice cream conversation I think is fun. And you know, how do you drown your sorrows, Rocky Road or, you know, something else like a, a man gone wrong. And, and that's the mint chocolate chip and they're both, they're both eating mint chocolate chip. I, I think that's great. I'm still slightly uncomfortable with the amount of men that have been appearing in the comic. And not just as villains, but for me, it it makes it seem like, you know, Dinah and Babs, when you get down to it, they're just weak women, right? Because it seems like these two are just victims at the hands of men. Dinah is falling for her first flame that she fell in love with when she was in college and then Babs of course is rescued by this guy to a certain extent and then he he dotes on her and and shows interest in her and they're both used for different purposes they're both betrayed and and it's just sad that it's like this and and it sort of goes back to manhunt right that they were um all those women were scorned by a man so I'm just I'm uncomfortable with it and I wonder why and yes we you know we have writers and artists as their men but I guess I I had higher hopes with with Chuck Dixon. While Babs wasn't very nice, I do like the scene where she goes off on the saleswoman in the bookstore because it shows that she's bothered by the quote-unquote break. And I think she's also still fighting her feelings of inadequacies uh, being in the chair. I think that's something that doesn't necessarily ever go away. Uh, I, I think this is something that which it's a reason why I really like the Dick and, and Babs relationship because he's certainly able to make her forget about it. And she is a bit of a grumpus. I mean, compared to her as Batgirl, I think she is more of a grumpus. And sometimes it takes somebody else to, to give her that confidence and, and make her forget about this and, and show her that she is, you know, she's still whole. You know, she's just a different whole. In the end, the two while being duped by men, fight in their own ways and defeat the men. And I like how the issue begins to show their pages side by side so you can see how Dinah and Babs' stories are parallel. 
The Bab scene where she actually turns off the lights and is able to use that to her advantage reminds me of the Audrey Hepburn film Wait Until Dark, which I highly recommend. It's, it was amazing. Audrey Hepburn plays a blind woman in there, and actually some men break in in order to burgle it. I like how Babs wants the burglary kept on the down low for her father's sake and that she says she has no idea what happened to them and maybe it was the Batman. I thought that was a comical scene. You know, kind of like a little wink and a, and a, a touch of the nose almost to the to the camera. And also, this is clearly before the Escrima sticks, though in continuity it doesn't make sense because of Batman Chronicles number 5 and being the origin of Oracle. But in publication history, of course, she doesn't have them. Babs and Dinah come to an understanding, and it also seems like this could potentially be the start and just the start of a new era, beginning with the stronger team. So I'm hopeful that we can move on from these setbacks and come forth stronger with these two ladies. And maybe they'll come up against, uh, not men, but, well, I guess general villains, but they won't fall victim to men. I'm going to give this an 8.5 out of 10 birds. I felt overall it was less well-rounded than the previous one, but I thought it was still powerful, uh, mainly because of just the personal struggles that the two went through, uh, either with each other or individually, and then how they were able to sort them out on their own, and then they came back together. I thought that it was uh, a great issue nonetheless. Now it's time for some listener emails. Mail Here's the mail, it never fails It makes me want to wag my tail When it comes, I want to wail These are all actually comments from previous episodes and actually just one episode in particular and that is the episode 131 that had Darren and Ruth Sutherland on it. First up from Donovan Morgan Grant in regards to Chris, Chris Carnes, he says, uh, quote, the answers to these body, batty, baritone, baffling, bewildering, baited, bare-handed, barbaric bemoans. Wow. I'm sorry the Steed and Peel crossover sucked for Chris. Maybe a different writer would have been a better fit. And then Chris responds to this, and he says, Donovan, I listened to that, and I don't know how you were able to transcribe it. Wow to you. A different writer? Yeah. While I read an interview with Edgington, and he seemed to have a handle on the characters, this story just didn't satisfy me overall. When I read mediocre to bad Batman 66 stories in the past, I, fairly or not, made assumptions and or allowances in that the writer or writers were restricted to the digital first format. I guess I'm just not as forgiving these days. But hey, here's hoping Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman 77 will be satisfying. Thanks for posting the comment. I appreciate it. Stella, simple math. Great host plus great guests equals a great show. You've done it again. By the way, I loved your assessment of Christopher Reeve as Clark Kent. Yes, the pacing of the movies were a bit slow compared to today's stuff, but I'm glad you got through the first two movies. That said, I'd say you shouldn't be in any rush to see the latter and much weaker too. Thanks for the kind words. I actually watched three and four, and I have to say that uh, they were bizarre. I think the beginning sequence of three was pretty ridiculous, and it was pretty hilarious, too. Just all these things happened. It was like a domino effect. Four, I will admit I fell asleep during four, and then I woke up, and I realized that I actually didn't miss anything. So I have watched all of them now. I should probably rewatch Superman Returns, which I had actually seen when it came out. But again, I'm very much appreciative to you, Chris for sending those my way. 
And then Chris comes back and he says one more thing. Speaking of Mike Grell, he did the artwork on the story entitled The Invader from Hell. In Batman Family Number 1 that Babs and Dick Shippers know was where Batgirl surprised Robin with a kiss that tilted his back and shocked and embarrassed him. After Robin gave her a peck on the cheek and a comment that she shouldn't be out crime fighting at the end of the story. A great classic moment that generated a lot of comments in the subsequent letters column and masterfully drawn by Mike Rell. The poses and facial expressions were perfect. A must-have story for any Babs and Dick Shippers out there. Oh, you betcha. That's one of my favorites for sure. And finally, from Ian Prime, he says, Stella, I was surprised no one mentioned that Gus's last name seems to be an homage to Kim Yale, Oracle's co-creator. I didn't catch it, Ian. So thanks for for letting me know that uh, I neglected that. So there you go. Yeah, Gus in uh, Birds of Prey, which I'll be talking about shortly. Thank you for all the comments. Uh, Just like these fine folks, you can always post a comment on the actual link to the episode on the BatmanUniverse.net, or you can write in to BatgirlOracle at gmail.com. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to give you a long song, though, so you can take a long break with me. When I come back, I'm going to review Batgirl and the Birds of Prey number 6 and Batgirl number 59 slash 7. But first, Zias's Radio Hour featuring Aqualong by Jethro Tull. <laughs>
welcome back. Hopefully you survived. You know, it's interesting because I, <laughs> with the song choices that I make, I tried to do themes or similarities to something that's going on in the stories that I'm covering. And so, you know, I'm finding myself like Googling for, in this case, you know, songs about homeless people. And then that popped up. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> with this, this episode seems to be speeding by. See what happens when I'm alone. It gets less than two hours, which I'm sure everybody has been waiting for. But it's beyond 20, so we can't go back to 2010, I'm afraid. Well, here we are with the finale of Batgirl and the Birds of Prey, the first act finale. So here's the question. It, was it worthwhile? Was it a worthwhile story? So let's see. So Batgirl and the Birds of Prey, number six, who is Oracle finale? Arise. Writers Julie Benson and Shauna Benson, artist Rohe Antonio, and colorist Alan Pasolacqua. After a momentary pause due to shock, Canary decides to go after Fenice alone, and then Huntress gets it together and chases after them both. We find out that Gus actually knew that Fenice was Huntress's mother, and Batgirl accuses him of jeopardizing the mission. This won't be the first time. Fenice and Santo go into the abandoned Majestic Theater. Yes, that Majestic Theater. And Huntress and Canary follow, only to happen upon the Snake Crew. Yes, the very same. Batgirl realizes that they need her help, and she has no choice but to leave Gus at the controls. The team fights the snakes, and they make their way into the main screening room, only to discover several members of the mafia. Batgirl believes that Gus has betrayed them, but he has called them because these mafioso are also out to get Finise. The fight against the snakes continues, and soon the GCPD joins. And in an ironic turn of events, the GCPD helps the mafia and vice versa. Huntress confronts Fenice and reveals that she is her daughter. Fenice can't believe it, and we find out what happened all those years ago. It seems that while she did love Frank, he only cared about the business, and she ended up falling in love with Santo. Frank would never let them live together, so they decided to have him killed. Hey, because that's, you know, divorce is out of the question. But it backfired, and the massacre occurred. After losing her children, her loss turned to rage and madness. She couldn't stand to be with Santo, returned to Italy, reinvented herself, stole in order to finance her own life, and like a phoenix, rose from the ashes to get her revenge. Santo pleads for his life and says that his men went rogue. After cleaning up the bad guys, the rest of the team arrive and convince Helena not to kill him. She listens, and Gordon arrests both Santo and Fenice. Jim looks at the birds, and the birds look at him. Helena and... And Dinah telling Babs that it's not a good idea to tell him the truth, to reveal her identity to him. The ladies hug and officially become the birds of prey. Also, despite my reservations, they also allow Gus to join the team. But Babs is watching. Always watching Mike Wazowski. After the birds leave, Gus gets a reminder to take his meds. And then gets a message asking if they trust him yet baby steps he replies seems the deal is getting worse all the time not really sure what that might be next up buyer beware in latin that would be caveat emptor or caveat emptor there you go so (laughs) here it is this is a long story format write six issues writing for the trade potentially was it a worthwhile story? Let me tell you, first of all, it was a slow burn. Yes, it's a regular length story, but it just seemed like it dragged on. Think of how many fights we have had against the snakes. At least one per issue of any like form of the snakes at all. Uh, quite honestly, I feel like we've fought them at least four or five times. I think that tells you something right there. 
the subtitle was who is Oracle, right? And then we find that out. But really, it's it's Oracle alongside Finise, and it's uh, there's just lots of stuff going on. I kind of wish we could have focused on one and then, you know, split off into another one, maybe broke it down into three stories, cut out some of the middlemen and made it more streamlined. But that's whatever. That's, this is what we have, right? Speaking of the fights we had, did anyone else think it was comical that new players just kept coming in? Do you remember Matrix Reloaded where all the Smiths kept coming in? That's what this was. I mean, there were so many people fighting. It looked like a mosh pit inside the theater. It's interesting that the fight takes place where Bruce Wayne's family was killed. And this is also the re- where the revelation of how Helena's family was killed. And this is revealed. And it's just sort of, there's so much irony going on. So much irony. I was a little confused when Finise was uh, giving her backstory how she, it seemed as if she was trying to drown herself Let me get to that page here. She says, I welcomed hell by way of the sea, but God wouldn't let me kill myself. I, I mean, I don't, it just seems very strange because she tries to kill Santo. Um, She's sad they're on the plane. Then Santo's there reading a note and then she's on a beach washed up. A little jagged, like you can kind of make it out, I guess. You know, she just tried to walk into the sea a la The Awakening by Kate Chopin, but it just didn't work out for her. But it, it was just a little confusing for me anyways. I like that Hunters didn't kill Santo in this issue. It seems like a t- real turning point uh, and a beginning for the team. And I hope that the Benson sisters build on this and really develop the team dynamics from this point on, because I think we have built a lot. And now that we've sort of sussed out the origins of everyone, now it should be about team dynamics, uh, chemistry, moving forward, becoming an actual good team. It's also interesting that Jim Gordon looks at the team, almost considering that he could or should take them in or considering something else. And then we have Dinah asking Babs if she would ever tell him. And it just makes me wonder, would this be the book that it would happen? Clearly, you know, the Batgirl book is sort of in a world of its own and it's more, it's really Barbara Gordon at the center of everything and anyone else is sort of very much on the periphery or not even involved in her life. So I think if anything, this might be, I mean, she's had a couple interactions with him already. Would the Benson sisters be allowed to do it? Will they pull the trigger? Hmm. There is a very clear artist issue on the penultimate page where Dinah is drawn, but the words are Babs's. Whoops. Let's talk about Gus a little bit. His meds. Uh, Did anyone else get sort of a rent vibe and the AZT break? AZT break. Uh, who knows if that is what it is. But it's clear that we shouldn't trust him, just as Ruth Sutherland said last time, right? We we can't trust him. Who knows what the meds are for? Who knows who the shady person is to whom he is speaking? Maybe it is calculator. Maybe I was right all along. And then, you know, I guess the other side is that it's clear that he's not happy with whatever deal it is. And, and I'm sure we're going to find some sort of sympathetic qualities about him and feel bad about him. And when the revelation comes through that he's betraying the team, he'll explain it'll be okay. And sometimes I just want a villain to be a clear-cut villain. You know, like Tara went in and she there's no bones about her. She was there to betray the team. But this guy is not being made out to be a, a Tara Markov. 
I don't think the birds completely trust him, uh, but I don't think it's wise that he's going to be on the team. And of course, you know, that's me as well as, uh, <laughs> so that's like a fan perspective, reader perspective, as well as like person sort of inserting herself inside the team. But we'll see what happens. And I'm glad that Babs has sort of learned her lesson, I think, from the Kai situation. And she's looking at him with both eyes open. Uh, so overall, I'm going to give this a 6.5 out of 10 birds, uh, better than I think than the last issue, though not by much. And the overall arc, I think I would probably give maybe a 7.5, 7 point, yeah, I mean close, 7.5 or 8 for the whole arc. But like I said, it was just slow. I feel like job could have been done maybe in five or four issues, uh. Again, just the snake, the snake fights, the sheer number of fights against that crew, I think is very telling. And the final book is the introduction of the Son of Penguin. Yep, you were waiting for it, I know. Uh, so this is Batgirl number 7, or as I like to call it, Batgirl 59, and the title is Son of Penguin Part 1. Writer Hope Larson, pencils, inks, and cover by Chris Wildgoose. Yes, it is first issue. And colorist Matt Lopez. Batgirl stops two animal activists from placing dog poop, yep, dog poop, inside a yuppie pet shop. Apparently, the shop used to be Chiroptera. Remember the uh, the lovely coffee shop that the Burnside crew created? The next morning, Babs has to get coffee at an expensive hoity-toity shop and finds out that Frankie is moving in with a girl she's been seeing, and thus Babs needs to find a new place to stay. Frankie tells her about a charity event that Gordon Clean Energy is co-sponsoring and Alicia seems to be setting it up. She tries to entice Babs with the lure of cute guys, but Babs says it's all about the books these days. Babs is back at Burnside College, and now she seems to be pursuing a degree in library sciences. She cares about information for everyone, and it seems like she belongs there, and even the professor says so. That night at a bizarre club, really, a bizarre club called Club Angelfish, Babs meets Alicia and Joe in a giant fishbowl, really, a giant fishbowl, and finds out they are thinking of starting a family. Babs goes to get something to drink and hears an unsettling conversation regarding the homeless around Burnside and how they should be gotten rid of. Babs tells them off and gets the attention of Ethan Cobblepot, the son of Oswald Cobblepot and the creator of VicForm, whose goal it is to improve communities through technology. They set up a kind of date. Babs later calls Dick to ask about Penguin or rub it in his face, who knows, having a kid, because uh, she didn't hear about it. Babs says they have a date and it will give her a chance to do some recon. They both share some quips before they both hang up. Later, Babs witnesses a couple reporting a homeless person to Safe Streets, which is an evil form of Uber, which picks up homeless people off the streets. The truck arrives at a warehouse where Batgirl jumps out and attacks a woman in a lab coat who happens to be Fright, a.k.a. Linda Fritawa. But she explains that she signed up to help and, hey, no one checked her credentials. The homeless man, a friend of Batgirl, helps her take down the lady, and Batgirl goes to do some more research into Safe Streets. Looks like Vic Form created Char- she goes to the date with Ethan Cobblepot, looking to find out what he is up to. Next, friend or foe? Clearly, the theme of this arc, or this issue anyways, is you can't go home again. Burnside has changed. Question, how long has Barbara been away? A couple, I mean a month, maybe not that long, quite honestly. I mean, she sort of got fed up from her little self-discovery journey and 
moved back. So I can't really imagine that it's been very long. Her friends have changed. Frankie has, all of a sudden, she's dating someone serious enough to move in with her. Joe and Alicia married, settled down enough to potentially talk about conceiving a, a child. Here's a question. Is Hope Larson taking down everything that the Batgirl team built because they were building up that supporting cast and now you're really breaking it up and creating Barbara Gordon as her own singular character as well as like literally destroying the town that she moved to I mean taking down and uh, the coffee shop and turning into a pet shop is there a message like she's trying to wipe it away and create her own legacy I don't know what's happening I enjoyed the art. I think it keeps the spirit of Birdside. More realistic facial expressions, I believe, than our previous artist. Uh, but I do wonder why Babs has dark circles under her eyes. Uh, is that a coloring issue or a line issue? Who knows? Babs is now back to school, apparently throwing away all the time she spent there in the first iteration. Probably also getting rid of Nadima and Kadir. Yeah, did you forget about them? Because I didn't. <laughs> but they're not in here. And apparently also all her degrees from pre-Flashpoint seem to be non-existent. Again, I ask you, who is this Barbara Gordon? We've got this weird and bizarre club. We get rid of Chiroptera with a pet shop. But apparently now there's a club with a weird fishbowl in it and a weird charity to give laptops to Dolphin. Couldn't tell if that was a joke or not. It seemed actually like they were saying it for real. So just some strange things going on. And does Babs even have anything to do with her own company? Yes, she goes to something that's sponsored by it, but it seems like she's hands off. This is so, it just feels like we have revamped. No, that's not even the right word. Like rebooted Barbara Gordon completely and there's no connection at all with the past here and it's just like this Barbara Gordon in a bubble which is very confusing to me quite honestly very confusing because you can't have it both ways you can't go back and have some characters appear and some history be true and other things are erased that doesn't it doesn't make sense and that's not just me as a Barbara Gordon purist but I think that's for any reader who has been reading this book since either the new 52 or issue 35 with Burnside like I mean it's got to be consistent the homeless quote-unquote problem certainly seems to be a recurring theme within comics and pop culture. I'm thinking about Batman the Cult, which is great. I'm thinking about Dollmaker. Just this idea of getting rid of people that you wouldn't miss. If you're going to do experiments, let's do an experiment on a homeless person. If you've got to practice working with live bodies and practicing surgery, let's take someone off the street because you're not going to miss it. Like this kind of stuff is sort of, I don't know if cliche is true, but it seems like the homeless people are really being attacked in, <laughs> in this world, in this universe. And also, I didn't feel like Burnside had a homeless person problem. Uh, it always seemed different from, I mean, I guess there are homeless people everywhere, but it just seemed distinct and different from other places, especially Gotham, that it's interesting that now it seems like they're overrun, as if they're rats running around. The, the way it's portrayed in this issue, that the city is overrun with homeless people. Why would Babs call Dick? Think about that. That's one of my questions. Is this to rub the date in his face? At the same time as she's getting information, couldn't she have answered the questions on her own, given that she's Oracle? 
Or is that another thing that's sort of missing from this particular story or book's continuity? Who knows? I think it's a little strange. Like, did you ever hear in your... Like, she could have probably done... Easily done research, gotten background information on him, probably his CV, known everything about him. Who is this Barbara Gordon? I'm not sure how fright plays into all of this and why she was chosen. To be honest, while I may have encountered her, didn't really, uh, didn't recognize her. There's not much focus placed upon the fact that she was a villain, uh, except for her name in the lettering of the bubble being bolded, I believe, or at least, like, it is set apart. But there's not even an editor note of, like, who this is. I mean, Barbara hasn't, I can't think of a time that Batgirl has faced off against this person, as if we should know exactly who this is. And again, I sort of question, what is this called? It's, um, well, no, I guess that, I was thinking of Don's term continuity porn, but that's not really it. I mean, this is sort of just like, let's put in a character that's going to be a good Easter egg. But I think there are probably better people that could have been Easter egged in that have a connection with Barbara Gordon's history than Fright. So... Uh, a little thrown off on that one. Absolutely, it's super bizarre that no one would check anyone's credentials. You get in trouble for that sort of thing in the real world, but you know, I guess that just points to the fact that this is probably a shady business that's going on with this um, Safe Streets. At least Barbara Gordon now is more suspicious of any guy. Uh, And she says, you know, that she is more interested in books, which I appreciate. Maybe that's the way she should be. That's what I've been saying all along, right? But it's interesting how adamant she is about this, uh, not looking for a man, and whether it's one of those things that, you know, I, I... does the lady doth protest too much? Um, but at least she's looking at this guy with a side eye glance. I think she thought that initially. Um, so maybe she's learned from the Kai situation. I think the fact that he's a cobblepot may be have prejudiced her against him. But I'm okay with this right now. On this side, I think there are certainly other issues that I have. I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10 bats. I'm more looking forward to how Babs, uh, to see how Babs adapts to a changing Burnside and what sort of character she becomes. Who will be her new roommate? How will Frankie continue to help her on the side if she isn't living with her? These are all sorts of questions. But in my mind, this is my conspiracy theory right now, is that sort of Larson seems to be washing away what the Batgirl team had created and sort of forging something new. But in doing this, which, you know, I completely understand why maybe you would do that because you do want to have your own legacy, right? Why constantly associate Burnside with the Batgirl team. But at the same time, that was working. So why not build upon it? I I think she had world building potential and possibilities in the you know the asia storyline and that didn't go so well so maybe like building rather than starting from scratch i think is a good thing and also larson seems to be getting rid of some really good elements that were were built up actually after thinking through all that i'm going to drop it down a little bit to a a 7.5 out of 10 it's a, v- a bit of a C issue. I just am concerned, I guess, with the throwing away and the some things are staying the same, some things are not. Is there something, is there a deeper meaning to this um, in terms of the outside world? Not really sure. But at least I can applaud Barbara for sticking to her guns and being, I guess, not being boy crazy and being book crazy. But I'm just sort of confused why she's going back to school yet again. And it's a different major and... 
I I just oh did she she lost her PhD and maybe her master's I don't know oh who is this Barbara Gordon she's I just it's difficult recognizing her in this form so I don't know I'll keep an open mind and hopefully it will develop well but I have many 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 questions so we'll see okay now over to Chris for his Batman sixty six review. That's like finding your favorite D-list villain appearing in the Lego Batman movie. No, your ears aren't deceiving you, listeners. This is the Batman 66 review segment. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Batfans. Welcome once again to the Batman 66 review segment. Thank you very much for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. I'm Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. The music sample you just heard was a few seconds of the opening to the first season of the 70s Wonder Woman TV show. Copyright their respective ownership. No copyright intended, and I make no profit from this. So, why did I play it, you ask? Well, today, I'll review Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman 77, number one. The first issue of a six-issue limited series. Issue number one was cover dated March 2017, and the cover art was provided by Michael and Laura Allred. Alex Ross did gorgeous artwork for a variant cover, and the contents were originally released in download format. Our opening chapter title doesn't appear until the final page, which appears to be called The War at Home, which was written by Jeff Parker and Mark Andranko. The penciler was David Hahn, and Carl Kessel was the inker. Our story begins with an Eartha Kitt version of Catwoman purloining a book entitled Lost World of the Ancients from the Finley Mansion and giving it to Talia al Ghul, who quickly gets in a car with her father. Batman and Robin arrive to snare Catwoman who tells Batman she was working for Talia, and she gives him an artifact she swiped from her. Back in the Batcave, Batman tells Robin that the artifact was attached to the League of Shadows. Then, Batman recalls a time some 20 years earlier, during World War II, and an auction at Wayne Manor, where two volumes of the book are up for bidding. Young Bruce was introduced to Talia and her father, Rachel Ghoul, and he also met Diana Prince, Steve Trevor, and Etta Candy, present just in case of any infiltration of Nazis. Mr. Finley was the highest bid, and he wins the book, having the most cash on hand. But Raish and a disguised Nazi give him higher offers afterwards. Not wanting to part with the book, the Nazi sheds his disguise and pulls out a Luger. Diana departs in the hallway, and Spin changes into Wonder Woman. But a hidden young Bruce and Talia witness this transformation. The kids take Mr. Finley through a secret hallway, but they are pursued. The kids manage to make it outside with the books and Bruce's hands during the chase. Wonder Woman and a young Talia manage to take out the Nazis, but in a garden maze, Bruce is suddenly confronted by a sword-wielding Raisha Ghoul who demands the books. To be continued. Jeff Parker, if memory serves me right, wrote most of the Batman 66 stories to date, and he presently works on Future Quest, which spotlights the great Hanna-Barbera action cartoons. Mark Andreco wrote the digital and later print versions of the Wonder Woman 77 stories. 
Recently, he was also the curator of the Love is Love graphic novel that benefited the victims of the Orlando nightclub shooting. Most recently, David Hahn, who did the artwork, did the art to Bayman 66 meets the Man from Uncle miniseries. So overall, this creative team is very familiar with the characters. Wow, two TV shows that I loved as a kid. Two versions of my favorite characters together. There were a lot of things to like in this opening issue. A flashback to the 40s, Rachel Ghoul, Catwoman, Talia, the classic Wonder Woman spin, deflections of bullets off of bracelets, intrigue, and a pretty fair cliffhanger for the opening issue. We got to see a young Bruce Wayne in action, even if it's uh, <laughs> a little bit with the little Lori Fauntroy look from back then. But that's something we don't get to see often with the action, and I wouldn't mind seeing more of that in comic book form. Talia was depicted as being close to young Bruce's age, which I thought was cool and perhaps unusual. When Talia debuted in the 70s, she appeared to be close in Bruce's age, but with the events depicted in the story of the Lazarus Affair and later Death in the Maidens, I presumed she could possibly be significantly older. And what with the New 52 and now with Rebirth, I'm just not certain of Talia's present age at this point. That said, for convenience and perhaps out of story's sake, I'm glad we've got Italia appearing to be close to Bruce Wayne's age. Uh, there were a couple of minor observations I had. This story had Batman in the Batcave with his cowl off, something you'd never see in the old 66 Batman TV series. Wonder Woman's hair was colored dark brown, which I thought was a nice touch. On the first few episodes of the Linda Carter Wonder Woman TV series from the first season, which was set in World War II, you can note that her hair was more so brown than a darker color, or later even colored black. This was a great attention to detail. Wonder Woman's costume depiction was very faithful to the version she had during the first season. I thought Han did a very careful job, and he towed the line just a bit in some panels with how she was drawn. Some may find it questionable objectionable. I thought it was just careful enough with how Wonder Woman was drawn for a comic book based on the TV series, and still being faithful to the character. Uh, also on one panel, Etta Candy shouted woo-woo, which was something the TV version of Etta Candy never did, but certainly did a lot in her Golden Age appearances in the comics, so I thought that was a nice callback and shout-out. One thing I didn't like, which I feel should be mentioned, was the three ninety nine cover price. A dollar increase per issue. I guess I have to reluctantly accept that the Batman 66 title may have a niche audience, but I contend that this version certainly is still recognizable and has a very broad appeal. If anyone who wasn't a Batman 66 reader beforehand and was thinking of jumping on here based on the appeal of Wonder Woman 77 and the appeal of Linda Carter and nostalgia of the TV series, they might be perhaps put off and think twice based on the cost of this book, which is a real shame. The comics market is crowded enough already, and I think this book doesn't need another return due to its price tag. Uh, let's see. Now, over on the TBU website, Jerry Green gave this 4 out of 5. I'll concur and give this the equivalent of 8 out of 10 bats. While she's called Wonder Woman 77, what is referred to as the pilot episode of Wonder Woman actually first aired on November 7, 1975. And the first regular episode of Season 1 aired on April 21st, 1976. Uh, incidentally, the pilot was written by Stanley Ralph Ross, who wrote the 60s, who wrote on the 60s uh, Batman show, primarily the Catwoman episodes. 
The first season ran on the ABC network, and the episodes were set in World War II. Wonder Woman 77 refers to the then-contemporary setting of the series on the latter two seasons of the show, which aired on CBS, and the digital and print incarnation of this version of the character. Fans of Wonder Woman 77 likely know that there is also a DC Comics Dynamite Comics crossover with the Bionic Woman miniseries, which is already on its second issue at the time of this recording. While I review Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman 77, I'll also comment on the series, favorite episodes, and notable guest stars and actors who appeared on both the 60s Batman TV show and the Wonder Woman series from the 70s. Before I go, I'd like to give a shout-out to Darren and Ruth Sutherland. After Stella's last regular podcast, I got a nice email from Darren, who said he and Ruth are huge fans of the Avengers TV series. Well, I wrote back to them and saying I was a pretty big fan of Mike Grell myself. Darren and Ruth host the Warlord Worlds podcast, which focuses on the work of Mike Grell. Also, Trekker Talk, which focuses on Ron Randall's Mercy St. Clair character, and Xenozoic Xenophiles, which looks at the Cadillac and Dinosaur series by Mark Schultz. Be sure to check them all out. Listeners, please check out the Bat Books for Beginners podcast that I co-host with Jerry Green. Please feel free to leave any comments for myself on this segment or for the podcast on the TV website. And please leave us a good review over on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe website and podcasts, you can make a donation on Patreon by following the link on the Batman Universe website homepage. If you wish to contact me directly, I can be reached by email at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. Thank you for your support. How will young Bruce Wayne get out of this dire predicament? What sinister secrets does the book Lost World of the Ancients hold? What circumstances will force the dynamic duo and Catwoman to visit Paradise Island? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these delirious, decadent, deranged, deafening, deplorable decoratives to be diagnosed, dissected, and discussed next time. Same Batstella feed, same Batstella sight. Next up and finally are my literature recommendations, and I just have two this time. One is a graphic novel. It's called Day Tripper. It's by Gabriel Ba and Fabio Moon. It follows the life of one man, Broad de Olivia Dominguez. Every chapter features an important period in Bra's life in exotic Brazil, and each story ends the same way, with his death. And then the following story starts up at a different point in his life, oblivious to his death in the previous issue, and then also ends with him dying again. In every chapter, Bra dies at different moments in his life as the story follows him through his entire existence, one filled with possibilities of happiness and sorrow, good and bad, love and loneliness. Each issue rediscovers the many varieties of daily life and a story about living life to its fullest because any of us can die at any moment. A really intriguing idea, beautiful art, uh, a great story, a different culture, which I think is great, and, and just really being authentic to that culture and being authentic to Brazil, which I appreciated. And so, yeah, I, I totally recommend Day Tripper. And my other one is uh, The Girl in the Spider's Web by David... Lagerkrantz, uh, and it is a Elizabeth Salander novel, but of course it is not, right? Stig Larsson is the one who had done the Millennium series, but those were published 
after his death, and so this is continuing this on. But uh, the back cover says, a genius hacker who has always been an outsider, a journalist with a penchant for danger. She is Elizabeth Sounder, the girl with the dragon tattoo. He is Mikhail Blancfist, crusading editor of Millennium. One night, Blancfist receives a call from a source who claims to have been given information vital to the United States by a young female hacker. Blancfist, always on the lookout for a story, reaches out to Sounder for help. She, as usual, has plans of her own. Together, they are drawn into a ruthless underworld of spies, cyber criminals, and government operatives, some willing to kill to protect their secrets. So I really liked uh, the the trilogy, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Horn's Nest. And I want to see where it continued. Of course, you know, when you see that an author has taken over from another author, I think you have to be a little dubious. But it seems like he still has the voice of both of those characters, the main characters, and, and I've been enjoying it. I, I've I've liked it. So uh, we'll see if it continues anymore. But those are sort of not, you know, they're more adult novels, especially if you've read The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. You know what I'm talking about. But both of those uh i am recommending this month well i feel like i have just breezed by this particular episode but i think it still was full of good content and you know i'm not gonna belabor any points right it could just be me going wow 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 but uh you can look forward to some wonderful things like i said just as a tease in the next couple months you may see the return of some very familiar faces whether they're wanted or not who knows <laughs> and as always you can call tom Pattery's pan pam he is welcoming that nickname he's sort of fighting against it but i'm really the voice of authority on it and that is his nickname so you just need to go with it frankly push down barriers be his friend be pan pan's friend remember you can send any questions or comments to backroll to oracle at gmail.com like the show on facebook or follow it on twitter at backroll to oracle Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And support TBU by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? <laughs>